Now, you're all familiar with the terms we often associate with God, the three omnis. God is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and certainly in the book of 1 Samuel, I mean, God does everything. Everything that can be done. God is, does it and is responsible for it. And I'll give you some examples here. You know the story of uh, Hannah. And uh, reading the first chapter, of course, the mother of uh, Samuel, that the Lord had kept her childless. Again, uh, God's power. We have to try to understand some of these verses here. And then after she has Samuel, of course, she has this wonderful prayer. And here's how she puts together here a picture of God here. The Lord kills and restores to life. He sends people to the world of the dead and brings them back again. He makes some people poor and others rich. He humbles some and makes others great. Okay. Do we really carry that thought through? You see a poor person? Well, God made that person poor. Um, how far do we want to take some of this? Um, well, you'll remember the story of um, the sons of Eli that we talked about last time. And uh, I'll just read this because there's an interesting little part here at the end that Eli was very old. He kept hearing about everything his sons were doing to the Israelites, that they were even sleeping with the women who worked at the entrance to the tent of the Lord's presence. So he said to them, why are you doing these things? Everybody tells me about the evil you are doing. Stop it, my son. This is an awful thing the people of the Lord are talking about. If anyone sins against someone else, God can defend the one who is wrong. But who can defend someone who sins against the Lord? But they would not listen to their father, for the Lord had decided to kill them. Now, you read on in the story, what happened was, you remember the people went out to battle, they were defeated, and so they had the idea, let's take the uh, covenant box out kind of as a good luck charm into battle. And so Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, went out to battle and they were killed. Okay, so our question here is putting it together with this verse, the Lord had decided to kill them. Um, how was God involved in the death of Hophni and Phinehas? How would we relate God's involvement to the Philistines, who were the ones who actually killed Hophni and Phinehas? And then the next time, we'll, we'll really get into the story next time of um, Saul. But this uh, comes up so many times, it's hard to ignore <clears throat> that the Lord's Spirit left Saul and an evil spirit sent by the Lord tormented him. Does God send evil spirits to torment? And it's not just one verse. The next day, an evil spirit from God suddenly took control of Saul. You can read this in any version. And he raved his, in his house like a madman. And you remember David came to play for Saul. And one day an evil spirit, again from the Lord, took control of Saul. And he was sitting in his house with his spear in hand. And you remember he tried to pin David against the wall with his spear. So three times uh, we have the words here that God sent an evil spirit to torment <clears throat> and to uh, trouble Saul. Well, it's in the Bible. We have to deal with this. Do we, does God send evil spirits? <clears throat> Later on, we come to the story of David, remember, who's running around trying to escape from Saul. And you remember that this man, Nabal, offended David and his men greatly. Okay, but his wife, Abigail, was able to smooth things over. And so Abigail went back to Nabal, who was at home having a feast fit for a king. He was drunk and in a good mood, so she did not tell him anything until the next morning. And then after he sobered up, she told him everything, and he suffered a stroke and was completely paralyzed. Some ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So he had a stroke, 
and then 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. Now, we don't have enough information and obviously we don't have a neurologic examination here in the Bible. It'd be interesting to know exactly what happened. But for someone to be completely paralyzed from a stroke, that's kind of interesting. Uh, probably the most common cause of that would be a hemorrhage in the ponds, actually. Now, interesting. <laughs> What's the mortality from a pontine hemorrhage? It's uh, 72%. Now, a large stroke, mortality is pretty high. So again, how do we read the words here? Some 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So we have God sending three times, sent an evil spirit to Saul. Um, we have God doing all of these things. Okay, did God really do something to Nabal 10 days after he had his stroke? Now, here's David's understanding of how Saul would die. This is very interesting. By the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul. Okay, now here's how David interpreted it. Here are the possibilities. Either when his time comes to die a natural death, what? Or when he dies in battle. So God's involvement in killing Saul will either be by natural death or in battle. Do we typically associate God terminating life in that way? Natural death or when he dies in battle... And of course, then you just read on. How did Saul die? Remember, he was fighting a hopeless battle and he fell on his sword. He committed suicide. Okay, so the Bible goes on after he dies. So the Lord killed him. After we just read that he fell on his sword, so the Lord killed him. In the King James, thus God slew Saul. Okay, so uh, we have these descriptions here of God uh, doing these things. Did God really kill Saul? It's certainly described that way in the Bible. Okay, now we're into 2 Samuel, but I think this is perhaps the most uh, revealing verse on this uh, difficult subject. The Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Does God occasionally make us think it would be a good idea to do something wrong? Does God tempt to evil? Well, if we read on to James, it's very clear uh, James is talking about troubles. My friends, consider yourself fortunate when all kinds of trials come your way. Okay, if we are tempted by such trials, we must not say this temptation comes from God. Well, it would kind of seem like this temptation to David came from God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, evil, and he himself tempts no one. And here in Samuel, we have God sending evil spirits and God tempting David to give a census. All right, so how are we to put all this together? Well, um, next time we will really continue on with the story. This, this talk today is uh, something we talked about last year, but I think for uh, new people, this has been, such, for me, such a helpful um, window into understanding some difficult stories in the Old Testament that I want to spend some time on this. I think it's important. Let's come back to this verse again. The Lord tempted David to give the census, or he made David think it would be a good idea to give the census. Now, we read this in 2 Samuel Okay, but if we read the same story, remember Samuel and, and Chronicles, a uh, book written much later, which describes the exact same thing, David giving the census. And here's the description in Second Chronicles. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. Okay, so we have in Second Samuel, God did it, and here we have in, in First Chronicles that Satan was the one who was behind the census. And for some, this is very troubling. Uh, you know, isn't the Bible inspired? I absolutely believe the Bible is inspired. But if it's inspired, why do we have here one time 
God's involvement, and then we have later on Satan's involvement. And again, I think this is very relevant to our discussion here. We're trying to put together our picture of God. Our thesis is the clearest picture of God is Jesus Christ. God is just like Jesus in character. We have these Old Testament stories. And how are we to reconcile this? So something we talked about last year, I'm going to expand on it a little bit here this morning or this afternoon, is what happened to Satan in the Old Testament. You know, Satan is mentioned three times in the entire Old Testament. If you count up all the references to Satan um, in the New Testament... And the book of Revelation, it's just again and again and again and again and again. In the Old Testament, uh, very elusive. Okay, hardly any references at all. Three times. Uh, one of those times is in the book of Job. And you remember the story early on in the book of Job where Satan came and has this conversation with God in the presence of the angels. And you remember God said, okay, Satan, you can have your way with Job. And so Job went out from the presence of the Lord. So as we're reading the story... We know that the calamities that fell on Job were because of Satan who was given permission to do that. Okay? But yet, the description, you remember, that fire came down, everything was destroyed, and the person who ran back to tell Job the story said, well, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay? Who else would send fire from heaven? And so, again, it was understood at that time, well, it must be the fire of God. We know from reading the story that that's not uh, actually what happened. So we have to read to the last book of the Bible, you know, even in Genesis, the serpent in the tree. I think most of us associate that with Satan. doesn't actually say that it was Satan. Okay, it's just a serpent in the tree, cunning snake. We have to go to the last book of the Bible. We're actually told twice, I think pretty clearly, uh, that this really was uh, Satan at the tree. That huge dragon was thrown out. That ancient serpent, I mean, how many ancient serpents uh, would we really try to think about realistically here? And it's almost kind of funny here the way John writes this. That ancient serpent, who's that? Name the devil. If we're still not sure, Satan. Okay, so it makes it clear. And then he repeats it here in Revelation 20. The ancient serpent, that is the devil or Satan. Okay, so again, if we're going to be faithful here to try to take the Bible as a whole, uh, we need to take the whole Bible, including the book of Revelation, to try to put some of these things together. So we come back here to the Old Testament. And the references that, again, I suspect many of you assume, well, that's, that's clearly referring to Satan. It doesn't actually say that in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 14, probably one of the best examples here. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, in the Latin, Lucifer, son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. And I think in, in context, we can say, yes, poetically, this is referring to Satan, but we, we don't have a, a direct reference in the Old Testament. And again, our question for now is, uh, why not? Why doesn't it spell it out very clearly for us in the Old Testament? Why do we have to wait until the New Testament before we're really exposed to this person? Now, this is a long one here in Ezekiel 28, but I think it's one of the most revealing Old Testament passages. Again, the name Satan is not referred to. It's the king of Tyre. But does this sound like it's referring to the king of Tyre? Son of man, sing this funeral song for the king of Tyre. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. So many times, God is a consuming fire. God is a fire. He lived in the very presence of God. You are blameless in all you did from the day you were created 
until the day evil was found in you. Your great wealth filled you with violence, and you sinned. So I banished you from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. And how many times here in Isaiah, you know, was thrown down to the earth. The passage we just read in Revelation was thrown down to the earth. And here in Ezekiel, so I threw you to the earth and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. And a lot of fascinating parts in this passage here that um, uh, we don't have time to talk about. But again, it would appear to be a reference to Satan, but it's not spelled out for us so clearly here in the Old Testament. Um, Another figure in the Old Testament I would like to nominate as uh, referring to Satan would be Leviathan. It's interesting. When God comes to Job, he doesn't say, okay, let me tell you what happened. Uh, Satan and the angels, we were all around here, and this is what happened. Instead, he gives him a description of this uh, beast, And here's the description of Leviathan. His pride is invincible. Nothing can make a dent in that pride. Nothing can get through that proud skin, impervious to weapons and weather. When it raises itself up, the gods are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Is it possible, God is saying to Job, you know, there's one thing you don't understand. And there is this... uh, this cosmic conflict, there is an enemy. And when we read on to Isaiah about Leviathan, and you should read Isaiah 27, it's really a description that sounds like the end of the world. And about Leviathan here, on that day the Lord will use his fierce and powerful sword to punish Leviathan, that slippery snake. Again, the ancient serpent of old, that slippery snake. Leviathan, that twisting snake. He will kill that monster which lives in the sea. And all of this is very significant. I mean, in Revelation, what happens at the end of evil? There was no more sea. Okay, and so I think we have these poetic descriptions. And again, our question is, why is Satan relatively absent in the Old Testament? And some of you may know Alden Thompson um, from Walla Walla University, but I I really appreciate his uh, insight into perhaps the relative absence of Satan. He described it this way, the nations surrounding Israel were polytheistic, worshiping many gods. In a polytheistic culture, the good things are attributed to the good gods, bad things to the evil ones. And those evil deities could be so volatile that humans were constantly brewing up incantations and magic rituals to placate them. And we'll read on in 1 Samuel how the witch of Endor, I mean, Saul had forbidden this practice, but yet he was involved in it at the end of his life. So the great danger for Israel lay in the temptation to worship Satan as another god. So rather than just forbidding magic and incantation, God went a step further and claimed full responsibility for both good and evil. Now, I realize that's that's a lot to take in. But again, we're trying to understand God sending evil spirits, God tempting David. It's all God in Samuel. And let's read on. As a result, throughout most of its pages, the Old Testament portrays God as the active agent in all things. God is the one who causes everything. Satan simply drops from sight until the very end of the Old Testament. And we have verses like this in Isaiah. God saying, I create both light and darkness. I bring both blessing and disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. God is certainly all-powerful here. Well, none of us would debate that. We're just trying to understand uh, the presence of evil and some of these things. So Alden Thompson would go on. Indeed, only three passages 
in the entire Old Testament are explicit in their reference to Satan. Okay, we've read two of them, Job and uh, in, uh, in Chronicles. The other one, Zechariah. And all three passages were either written or canonized toward the end of the Old Testament period. They're all very late. And so again, as I said, when we come to the New Testament, I mean, uh, Satan's just coming out of the woodworks. Okay, there's this new figure here that almost seems like, uh, why are we now talking so much about Satan? I mean, when Jesus is baptized, the very first thing he does, after God says, you are dearly, my dearly loved son, you bring me great joy, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness, or literally it drove him into the wilderness. And the first thing he did then was encounter Satan, defeated Satan in the wilderness. Okay, it was interesting that this would be the first mission, to go out there and encounter Satan and the, the temptations um, there, there are three temptations at the tree, and, and we see three in, in the wilderness with Jesus, which are some interesting parallels. And the angels were obviously there because the angels took care of Jesus in the wilderness. And just to very quickly go through all, there isn't nearly enough time uh, to list all of these, but when Judas ate the bread, the description here is, then Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus would warn Peter, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you, to separate the good from the bad as a farmer, separates wheat from the chaff. And several times in John, Jesus would refer to Satan as the prince of this world. Okay, How does it feel to know that the prince of this world is Satan? It's kind of unusual to, to think about it that way. We have descriptions in the New Testament that would seem a polar opposite to some of these Old Testament descriptions. Paul is talking about how he wanted to travel one place or go to another place. And then he'd say, well, we very much wanted to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Okay, we wonder, how did that really work? But uh, again, we have so many descriptions like this. And Paul would say, who is our real enemy? We're not fighting against human beings but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. Okay, that, that picture was really not there uh, so much in the Old Testament. Okay, and again, more Paul. Satan is the god of this age, small g, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Very clear passages. And in John, in 1 John 5, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Hey, why is this important that we incorporate uh, this uh, cosmic conflict? I think it's very important, and I want to give you some, some reasons why. Satan is often described as uh, what's known as a flat character. Uh, it's a literary device. When you talk about characters in a movie or in a book, we can label them as flat or round or stock characters. And a flat character is a minor character in a work of fiction who does not undergo substantial change or growth. In the course of a story, you can pretty much rely on a flat character to behave in a certain way under a certain circumstance. Also referred to as two-dimensional characters or static characters, flat characters play a supporting role to the main character who, as a rule, should be round. So our question is, is Satan merely a flat character who doesn't really have a story to tell? Is he just evil personified and we, we don't need to discuss it much further than that? Well, we can't make Satan a flat character. When we read verses like this, even Satan can disguise himself to look like an angel of light, uh, which certainly he appeared that way in the tree. He didn't right away you know, say who he was. I'm the deceiver, and I've come to trick you. He, a deceiver, by a definition, there are surprises. There are twists and turns. 
this is a, a multi-dimensional complex character. And I think the more we understand this, I, I think it's, it can be quite enlightening. We tend to associate Satan merely with Ouija boards and Halloween, and that's pretty much the end of it. Um, is there a story, a storyline that is important for us? So I want to give you a, just a couple points here for, for how I think it is important to incorporate a cosmic conflict into our understanding of things. We've seen just in the book of 1 Samuel that I think it can be very important as in our understanding of the Old Testament. Last time we talked about two things. It's important that we <clears throat> take Jesus as our clearest picture of God and that we see God in the Old Testament meeting people where they are, okay? occasionally using some very dramatic me- measures to meet people where they are. <clears throat> I think we can also, now if we bring this cosmic conflict and Satan revealed in the New Testament, we can bring that back into 1 Samuel and perhaps see that the reality is that God did not send an evil spirit to torment Saul. Okay, that there is a greater complexity involved here. Another thing uh, that can be very helpful, and I'll expand on this a little bit, is I think cosmic conflict theology helps to explain how we got into this problem in the first place. It explains, if we understand the problem, it may also give us some clues about the solution for the mess that we're in. And I know the students last year, we went through this story so many times, but I think it can't be overlooked. The story that explains how sin entered the human race occurred in this conversation between Eve and the snake at the tree. This is a critically important story. And so if we read this very carefully, that the snake was the most cunning or crafty or subtle animal that the Lord God had made, and the snake asked the woman, and we have to really think, what is the trick? What's so bad about the words here? Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, if we were just to read what God actually said, he said, you may eat the fruit from any tree in the garden, except for this one. So what's the implication here? Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Well, it's, it's really, uh, boy, you're not free in this garden, are you? God's really not a God of freedom. How come you can't eat any fruit? And perhaps Eve, as she's thinking about this, may have wondered, well, why should my freedom be restricted at all? Why can't I come to this tree and eat this fruit? Um, I think it was a very subtle foot in the door. And Eve's response to Satan, if we're assuming this was Satan, was really rather weak. I mean, you would think if she really, um, you know, was going to be faithful to God and someone suggested something negative about God, she would just be out of there. Okay, that's it. I'm not listening to this anymore. But she engaged in dialogue. And she said, uh, well, no, that's not true. You can't even touch the fruit, which, of course, we don't have God saying that. And I think Satan then senses his opportunity. And so the snake replied, that's not true. You will not die. Now, this is not subtle at all. Basically, God is a liar. He's lied to you. God is an untrustworthy liar, Eve. And God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. So again, the implication here is God has selfishly withheld something that would have been for your good. Okay, and I've come to enlighten you and perhaps stimulated a little pride in Eve. Boy, if I eat this, I can go to a more elevated state and, uh, you know, uh, stimulated some thoughts in the wrong direction. But I think this story, what, what was really happening here, when Eve ate the fruit, this wasn't a poisonous fruit. What she really ate was a lie about the kind of person God is. God's not a God of freedom. He's a liar. He's not trustworthy. He's selfishly withheld something from you. 
And eating the fruit was really uh, ingesting the lie and believing the things that were said to her were true. And a lie can be very powerful. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie uh, Inception. Well, this is a fascinating movie. And uh, I, I was uh, riveted here by the description in the opening of the movie. What's the most resilient parasite? An idea. And an idea is like a virus. It can be so powerful as to change a man forever. And as the story went on, you'll remember that um, the character in this movie tried to go into his wife in the core foundation of what she believed and to change something. I think an idea can be very powerful. It's like a virus if it's a bad idea. And I think the most important conviction that we have of all is what we believe God is like. I think everything else in our life flows out of that. What is our picture of God? And we see in Eve immediately a distorted picture of God um, right away, everything falls apart, immediately. Okay, because what do we see? God comes from a, from a walk in the garden, and it doesn't say he was storming through the garden, where are you? He came for a walk in the garden, and he called out, where are you? Because he knew where they were, right? He could have just, boom, been right there. Okay, it was the least threatening way to approach them in the garden. Where are you? Okay, and they're afraid. Are they afraid of the serpent? No, they're afraid of God. They're hiding in the bushes. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, really. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid and hid from you. And human history is basically people in fear of God. The entire Old Testament basically just tells the story of people trying to placate God's wrath through child sacrifice. The gods are always angry. Uh, The hallmark of idolatry is an angry, vengeful God who needs to be appeased. More blood, the better. Anytime we read through, like uh, um, Elijah and the false prophets of Baal, what were they doing? Cutting themselves, flowing blood, uh, because Baal will like that. So it is really the idea, this idea, I think, that has infected our planet. And we might think, uh, well, for any of us that, um, you know, claim to know God, to be Christians, we're not infected by that idea. But I think it's quite shocking when we consider that Jesus came to his own people who were reading the Old Testament knew the Old Testament very well. We're going to church, we're paying tithe, we're doing all kinds of good things. And then he had this conversation. Remember, they could look at him and say, you are of the devil. And Jesus said, you are of your children, or you are the children of your father, the devil, even though you're reading the Bible. And you want to follow your father's desires. From the very beginning, he was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies. And I wish I had quoted the version here that uh, puts this in the singular. He is the father of the lie. Okay, and the lie ultimately comes back to the trustworthy character of our God. These people, I mean, they were calling God by the right name, but if we understand uh, what the Pharisees' picture of God was, and there's a lot of good evidence for this, they worshiped a vengeful, punishing God may have called him by the right name, but their picture of God was very distorted. And and that's very clear because they looked at Jesus and said, you are of the devil. Looked at God in human form and said, God certainly cannot be like you. So why did Jesus come? This is our verse from last time. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has made him known. And we have to make, I think, central to the mission of Jesus to clear up any misunderstanding we might have about God's character, the person of God. Okay? He came to bring us out of the bushes, in a sense. 
And so his mission is described so many times in that way. The Son of God appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. Okay, what did the devil manage to do? Well, he'd certainly twisted our minds about God's character and everything kind of uh, uh, expanded from that. Jesus himself became like them and shared their human nature. Again, why did he do this? He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil. And he came as the light of the world in John 8 because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4. Okay, so there are so many descriptions of this uh, cosmic conflict and that Jesus is really the solution, the one who won the cosmic conflict. Okay, and the, the cross is so often associated with this in John 12. The time for judging this world has come, going out to the cross, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Now, interesting, where is he cast out from? And I would just like to make a claim that we can, we'll talk about more later, that ultimately he is cast out from our minds. Okay, when at our corest conviction, okay, we accept Jesus' revelation of God, I think Satan is cast out in that moment. Okay, and if you really believe that the one dying on the cross was God in human form, uh, it's, it's hard not to be one to trust and to put your faith in someone who would lay down his life for others. So again, at the cross in Colossians 2, Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants. Who are the spiritual tyrants? In the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. So in principle, Satan was defeated at the cross. Now that has not really worked itself out. I think this is the message that needs to go throughout the world. Okay, but in principle, that was where Satan was defeated. So just, a, I think, uh, is so interesting as more and more evidence comes out about the early Christians and what they believed. And the, this cosmic conflict theme was very prevalent in the early Christian church. It kind of died out, and recently there's been more interest in this type of theology. Uh, N.T. Wright wrote, there was then, talking about the early Christian church, no such thing as a pre-Christian Jewish version of Pauline, what we know, now know as Pauline atonement theology. The earliest Christians regarded Jesus' achievement on the cross as the decisive victory over evil, but they saw it even more as the climax of a career in which active, outgoing, healing love had become the trademark and hallmark. So uh, I think as we talk about atonement and what Jesus did, uh, that needs to be central. Now, a third point, I think also very important, that cosmic conflict theology, I think, begins to address the question of theodicy. What is theodicy? It is the dilemma here of an all-powerful, all-good God and children who starve every day in Africa and rapes and murders and injustice. How do we reconcile an all-powerful God with these things that go on in our world? It's probably the number one thing that keeps people from God. And I think this cosmic conflict is in the right direction of helping to answer some of those questions. I can't say much uh, about this, but uh, I'll just make a couple points. The Lord's Prayer, where Jesus would teach us how to pray, and he would say, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so where is God's will being done? Well, God's will is oops, certainly being done in heaven, not on this earth. We are to pray that God's will be done on this earth. And I think when we attribute every bad thing that happens, well, it's God's will. It's God's will. Um, I think we have very good precedent that things happen on this earth that are not God's will. We are to pray that God's will be done on earth. 
Okay, but it very often isn't, and this world is a mess. And the Lord's Prayer ends, keep us safe from the evil one. Okay, uh, there is another actor in the story. And a big question that we can't answer is, well, why didn't God just eliminate him? Okay, why is he allowed to cause all these problems? That's an important subject. Jesus encountered this woman who had been uh, sick for a long time. This is how he described it. Now, here is this descendant of Abraham whom Satan has kept in bonds for 18 years. Should she not be released on the Sabbath? Now, a woman kept in bonds 18 years. Now, this is maybe a good chance to, to bring this up. What I'm not saying is that Satan is in every earthquake fault, that he's in the cells and this woman in the tissues doing things. And I think what Jesus is really saying here, what you see in this, this illness of this woman, this is the outworking of Satan's kingdom. This is not what God's kingdom looks like. You want to see the consequences of making Satan the prince of this world? Look at this woman. Okay, and then, of course, he healed her. I think um, it would be a little bit like trying to do a, a, a lecture on World War II and uh, we deny the existence of Hitler. Okay, we, we describe all kinds of things, but uh, let's, let's leave him out of it. He's not really an important uh, figure in the story of World War II. Now, that doesn't mean that, that Hitler actually opened the gas chambers that killed you know, all of the Jews and so on, but it was an outworking of his kingdom. And so I think what we can say is that in the mess of this world, that it ultimately is the outworking of a satanic principle, like a virus that has worked itself into our planet. Survival of the fittest, uh, for example. Uh, we know that in the new earth, the lion and the lamb lay together. We don't have the same uh, satanic principle at work. If you have a, a chance to take a class from Sigvi Tonstad here in the theology department, I would highly recommend it. He is uh, very very invested in, in this uh, cosmic conflict theology and has been very helpful for me in uh, understanding a number of things. And uh, I thought this quote in his book, Saving God's Reputation, was uh, very helpful. As a deceiver, Satan wins support for his cause by something other than what he truly represents. That's what a deceiver does. If this is the case, then the simple demolition of the deceiver will not suffice unless or until his true character has become manifest. You can't just kill a deceiver. I mean, what would happen if, uh, you know, uh, in heaven, Satan, let's say he's doing what he did at the tree. He's telling lies about God, and Satan had just eliminated him. If you were an angel, what would you think about God at that moment? Wouldn't that cause fear? I mean, uh, that God would just eliminate someone who would question, okay, would not have won the great controversy in that way. So such a perception of the cosmic... Oh, let me just go back here. The simple demolition of the deceiver will not suffice unless or until his true character has become manifest. Such a perception of the cosmic conflict depends on the presentation of evidence for its resolution. He must be unmasked by evidence to the contrary. That is, by the evidence of his own actual deeds. The crucial point relates to the fact that a conflict of this matter cannot be resolved by force. Satan must be allowed to commit evil for his evil character to be manifest. The political risk to the divine government of this projected policy, not to mention the theological risk, hardly needs to be elaborated because isn't that true? What happens? We blame God. Where was God? Where was God when this happened or when that happened? So really, any kind of a conflict of this nature does need to be resolved by evidence. Um, uh, someone I used to work with a number of years ago 
I had someone I didn't know very well who was talking to me about this individual and said, yeah, it's really a shame he had an affair with his secretary. And I knew the doctor and his secretary quite well, and I just could not imagine such a thing. Um, but it's hard to get that out of your mind when someone says something like that. I don't believe it to be true uh, to this day. But when uh, there is something like that that is just put out there, um, how do you defeat it? In that case, it's pretty hard to have evidence in a case like that. Um, but, you know, if someone, let's say someone accused me of embezzling money from the School of Medicine and that this rumor was going out, did you hear that uh, Dr. Cole has been embezzling money? What would be the only way to clear it up? I mean, you'd have to pull up my bank records. You'd have to go line by line. It would have to be evidence. would be the only way to completely satisfy the claims. So, uh, in conclusion, I would like to suggest perhaps a new definition of God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful, yes, even though he has allowed for this great controversy. But I think in Jesus, perhaps we can define God's omnipotence this way. Omnipotence is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. Uh, God's ultimate power is his love, and that was revealed clearly at the cross, and I think eventually that love will triumph in the end. Let's pray. God, once again, I just ask that you would help us to see these things in in greater light. Uh, Surely this uh, all could have been said more clearly, but we just ask that uh, the light from the cross, from your life during those three and a half years, that that would illuminate our thoughts and help us the rest of this year as we go through the Old Testament to come closer uh, to the God that Jesus revealed. Amen.